Before I begin, I want to introduce Phoenix, who's sitting near the back. Uh, Roberta introduced Phoenix with Alex, our two retreat support staff. So she'll be on for the next few days. You might see her around. And of course, they're available. You know how to contact them with the phone in the office. So I bet you can guess what I'm going to talk about tonight. Sometimes in the middle of retreats, maybe about this time, you know, in the middle of a sit or the middle of a walk, middle of the night, the thought can arise like, so what's the big deal about mindfulness? I mean, it's really amazing, especially these days here in the West. I mean, not only do we have quite established institutions like IMS and there are many others, maybe not quite as big around the country. And so many books on mindfulness, so many teachers now, and and now it's proliferating into the wider culture in so many different ways. And so it's just interesting how You know, sometimes when something gets so popular, we become suspicious of it. You know, is it really worthy of, I don't know if I'd call it a hard sell, but just the prestige or the glow that it can have. Many of you have heard the beginnings of um, one of the suttas where the Buddha really describes in detail some of the sort of supports and trainings in the, mindf- in the mindfulness practices, the Satipatthana Sutta. And it begins, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. So that's a big deal. So I thought it'd be nice, useful for all of us to unpack why all this emphasis on mindfulness. And I like to call it, at times at least, just to emphasize the elements of, the important essential elements of wisdom and wise effort that really go hand in hand with what we're calling awareness practice or mindful awareness practice. We can just, we should just uh, always remember that there are strong elements of wisdom involved with being aware. So I like to call it sometimes a soft power. So I like power because You know, just from an ordinary egoic point of view, we like power, right? We want power. And power is not inherently a bad thing. It's just power, right? And soft, the word soft is sort of, to make the word power, you know, the combination of soft and power together is sort of surprising and maybe helps us be a a little bit more alert a little bit more interested. 
There's this passage, maybe you've heard it, from the, uh, from the Dari Cheng. The weakest thing in the world can overmatch the strongest things. The weakest things in the world can overmatch the strongest things in the world. Nothing in the world can, can be compared to water for its weak and yielding nature. Yet in attacking the hard and strong, nothing proves better than it. For there is no alternative to it. The weak can overcome the strong and the yielding can overcome the hard. This all the world knows, but does not practice, except here at IMS, right? Where we have a sense, this cultivation that we're undertaking, building the momentum of this soft power of wisdom and awareness that knows how to make effort the power of which is really coming from the persistence, the continuity, and from understanding that the effort is really about the remembering, sort of remembering what it is we're doing, having like recalling the mind's understanding of awareness. And even if we don't have a lot of direct experience, then we're recalling the information that we have, what we've heard that rang true from our teachers, from the book that you were offered to use. We recall that and we sense like, what does this have to do with the present moment, with connecting, with seeing clearly? The Buddha from his own practice, his own insight, he really realized or discovered two things. He discovered the experience of his heart, mind, free from clinging, free from grasping. And he discovered, came to understand the way, the path, so that the awakening, what he, uh, this freedom that he woke up to was seen as a lawful result a lawful expression of this understanding, this practice that was developed. And we're really lucky because he understood that clearly he could articulate it. And part of this blossoming of mindfulness for all the good it's doing in the world and maybe, you know, maybe it's off in some corners of the wider proliferation of mindfulness, who knows? But certainly, uh, it's quite a blossoming we're seeing here, <coughs> excuse me, especially in the West. This is still, 2,600 years later, the reverberations of these insights from the Buddha, this freedom that he realized, and his clear understanding of that freedom being the result of a very natural process, a very lawful, natural development of the mind. In one of the discourses, you know, the Buddha was talking, I forget the exact context, but he was talking about developing the practice and the simile he used, it's, you know, it moves onward toward Nibbana, toward the release, a mind released of greediness and aversiveness and deluded right? It's like the Ganges flowing 
down to the ocean, not easily stopped. You can maybe dam it, but it's going to keep moving, right? And it's the same way this, if we understand the way and we keep planting those seeds, keep cultivating those seeds, then the practice, the development, the movement towards release, it can't be stopped. It's just a question of getting the right information, being interested in enough to contemplate it, to think about it, to apply it to our direct immediate experience until it becomes the habit of the mind, until the mind really has its own direct data that demonstrates you know, this sense, this intuitive sense of how the practice, how the continuity of this wisdom awareness gravitates towards release. And uh, another thing the Buddha said is it isn't something that we have to wait until the end of the path. So one of our assignments, you know, just that will naturally come online when we're practicing being aware, oh, this is being known, this is being known. So if there are any fruits from the continuity of awareness, whatever that might be like for us at any time of the day, then those fruits are going to be seen just in the course of the continuity of awareness. So if there's more spaciousness, more ease, more resilience when difficult experience comes, more of a a natural quality of forgiveness and patience and steadfastness, more of a alive curiosity, right? We'll see that naturally as the fruits, right? Because all of those wholesome qualities of the mind, they have this flavor of release in the same way that when we notice a lot of greed or a lot of fear, a lot of aversion, a lot of reactivity, and the mind is somewhat or a lot caught in it, identified with it, we see very clearly when awareness re-arises that, oh honey, this is not the way. This is not the way I want to go. This is not what I aspire to. This feels heavy. This feels hard. Right? So we want to be on the lookout for that movement toward release. And be careful with stories about that we might just be in the habit of telling ourselves that somehow the goods come way later, you know, only after I'm a good practitioner or and that wouldn't make sense, right? It's like, why would we get all the bad results immediately, <laughs> you know, but none of the good results? I mean, that doesn't sound lawful, right? And like a lot of natural things, you know, we, the response is immediate because there's something in these natural systems, these natural processes within any moment, the way we're relating, the way we're showing up has the flavor of where that leads. So if I'm relating with ignorance, the tightness of fear, the tightness of greed, uh, you know, whatever particular afflictive state my mind might be caught up in, right? It's not only heavy or tight now, but there's a sense of that being set in motion in the future. 
And the same is true when we're cultivating these wholesome qualities that the Buddha lays out for us. Walking in the footsteps of the Buddha, right? We have these pointing out instructions, not just of course from the Buddha, but then those who've practiced before us, all of our wise teachers on down and including all of us because you know, even though there are teachers on this retreat, most of the time the Dharma teacher, however feeble it might be in moments, right, it's alive in us. You know, and every once in a while we have a small group or we pull outside Otejaniya's book and we read a few pages or a few paragraphs. But even then, those teachings generally are only useful to the degree that they resonate with some contemplation, some reflection that we've done previously. So we're building some momentum. Certainly people who had inclinations to come to a retreat at IMS, right? There are some inclinations already in the mind, some movement of wisdom already there to keep watering. So I like to think about wisdom awareness as this sort of universal solvent, like uh, the water that carved the mile deep canyon in the Grand Canyon. Some of you I'm sure have seen that, or other canyons they are pretty impressive. And especially when you realize, when we realize most of that carving out of solid stone was done with this very long, wearing down by water, something pretty soft. Saito Tejaniya said, the awareness we are seeking is unprompted. We are not digging for it. We are simply residing in the ebb and flow of nature itself. Something, this is being known, something's being known. What is it? This is being known. It's such a simple instruction, such a, you know, it doesn't take any muscular effort for the mind right now to recognize hearing as being known or comprehending as being known or sitting, sensations are being felt, being known. I always uh, try to reflect when I'm practicing because, you know, we can misuse the instruction to relax, right? It can be this thing that we need to impose on the moment or pretend that we're relaxed or something like that. It's, I find it helpful to reflect on the instruction to relax as a wisdom instruction. Like what understanding makes it feel appropriate or safe to relax? You know, like whatever particular charge we might be feeling now about wanting to succeed during the retreat, wanting to get something from the retreat, or maybe you're, you know, falling off of the cliff. Not that we stay there, but we're sort of in that place where we're pretty sure nothing's going to happen on this retreat. And we're just counting the days to the end. 
it's interesting, isn't it, when we're in that place, that sort of despairing place, and then because things change, the practice, and because of the momentum and the practice, it just sort of kicks back in, you know? And I, I notice sometimes it's sort of like this mixed feeling like uh, a little bit disappointed because I was pretty sure I was doomed, right? So it's sort of like <laughs> challenges the fixed view that, you know, this isn't working for me or something's off or I guess I'll have to wait for the next retreat. But then also just that, that surprise, like how I could be so wrong. And this is so true about our self stories and why it's so powerful to cultivate this idea, to hear the idea and to really cultivate, to reflect on the idea that it isn't so much that you or I become wise or you or I become free. Wisdom, release, freedom, is a natural process. It really can't be stopped. You know, the image I really like, uh, <laughs> being from Minnesota, um, <clears throat> and, but here in, in New England, you know, you have those frost heaves. And, but the interesting thing is um, water, you know, anything that gets colder gets a slightly more compact. But there's some molecular thing that happens to water that right before, right at, when it goes from being really cold, 33 degrees, to frozen at 32 and below degrees, it expands a little bit. That's why icebergs float, right? Because they're lighter than water. And that's why you get these little frost heaves in the road because there's some moisture under the road. And that's fine until the ground under the road freezes and then that water expands. And because it's a molecular process, it's very hard to stop that expansion. There is tremendous power in that very simple natural process of liquid water becoming ice, right? It expands with tremendous power. And there are many other examples of the power of nature. Now, isn't that useful for us to think about the cultivation of wisdom and awareness planting the seeds, starting over again, this is being known, it's like this now, what else can be known, what's not being seen here, can this be okay? It's just an experience being known, a feeling being felt. You know, the, these ways of starting over, planting these seeds, and the momentum of that and it's really, I think, useful because it's energizing in the right sort of way to see this, this building of momentum as a natural, impersonal process. And of course, like a lot of natural processes, both good and bad, there are tipping points, right? And you'll see this too sometimes when you're sitting and you have some momentum in your awareness and then some seductive problem or thought or memory shows up, you know, and you maybe the wisdom is there and can deflect it in, to some degree, oh, that's just that thing. But there's some, a little wavering, a, a little bit of identification with the feeling associated with the memory, let's say. But it, and because there was some identification, there's likely that, that image or whatever that provocative experience was will re-arise 
right? And at some point, it's a tipping point, and the mind, the confused mind, somehow justifies, like, no, I need to think about this. This is personal. This is the appropriate time. Not that we do that out loud or consciously, but clearly it happens because how else would we spend so much of the day lost in thought, you know, or at least significant, well, maybe I should just speak for myself, <laughs> right? But we, I spend time lost in thought. I'm assuming I'm not alone in that. And uh, so there's some tipping point. So again, just to, why not look at the other tipping point when the, when there are times during the day where there's some momentum, some of the right kind of effort, not a muscular effort, but just an effort that expresses itself more as an interest in the present moment or curiosity in the present moment as a natural process. And the energy that comes from recognizing, like it sounds so boring to say, this is being known. Because the sort of intellectual mind, the thinking mind says, you know, and it's appropriate from that point of view, okay, I got it. (laughs) You know, it's just this being known. It's as if that's like going to be a multiple choice question. Is it this being known or is it, you know. But, But when the mind actually senses the reality that in this moment, it's just this being known and there's nothing outside of that. There's a lot of energy there because that mind, that moment of mind, there's some wisdom there. Seeing things as they are, there's not the normal distortions that come from you know, the filters we generally live with. The presumptions of permanence, the presumptions that things are personal, it's about me, it's my experience my likes, my dislikes, that somehow when I practice well, well, I'll find something satisfying. I mean, one of the, I mentioned, you know, that this great blossoming of the mindfulness in particular, and, uh, you know, one of the reverberations of mindfulness in the wider world is that it's a really wonderful technique to heighten our experience of uh, the world. It's like, have you noticed that oatmeal tastes better here at IMS when you're on retreat? Because we're more mindful, you know, and the sunsets look more beautiful and the walks through the woods and the green of the ferns and the blossoms of the early flowers. Because it's sort of true, generally speaking, that when there's some continuity of mindfulness there's a more vivid, the mind, the heart is just more sensitive. It comes naturally with the stability of awareness, the continuity of awareness. And so there's this general sense that mindfulness, this is the point of mindfulness, is to make life more delightful, make our moments of existence more delightful. I always feel like at IMS and other Dharma centers, we should have a disclaimer, you know, probably in pretty big letters, maybe just underneath the metta sign, maybe you notice that on the top of the building in the front side, 
some disclaimer about, you know, cultivating mindful awareness leads to seeing things as they are. (laughs) And that can be troublesome, right? Or certainly surprising, shocking, not what we necessarily expect. I remember a long time ago, probably maybe Joseph still says this, but he uh, used to say something like, it's not so much about what you find in practice, it's rather more about what you don't find. Maybe you've heard something like that. It's not an uncommon statement, right? And that's really a reversal about various Excuse me. Various spiritual practices that are <clears throat> really about, you know, wanting to amplify the pleasantness of human existence, wanting to make life more rich, right? I mean, it's a lot of in the sort of wider spiritual um, programming or workshops, books. It's really about, you know, the intensity of life, the intensity of experience, the richness, the beauty, how to maximize this in life. So it's, it's kind of a normal approach to living where we're trying to get what we want and not get what we don't want. But now we're using spiritual tools to amplify our ability to get what we want to get away from what we don't want. And this is why in, you know, in this retreat and generally speaking, speaking, we, we combine wisdom with awareness, why it's so important to not just think, well, I just need to be aware, but we need this initial, initially this information and then reflecting on the information and then having some intuition about how that information is pointing to something that's true in our experience. Like Saito Utejaniya will use statements like, this is a natural process, it's not personal. So we hold that as, I mean, that may not initially be something we can speak about from our own experience, but it's certainly something we can understand intellectually, that something might be a natural process, including thought, including the movement of emotion. I uh, noticed today at the um, Gaston Pond where they have some teacher apartments, there's a landline there and it rang and so I picked it up. It's, I don't think it's ever rung before in all my years of teaching here, but so I picked it up and then there was this person on the other line, of course it wasn't, but if you know these robocalls or marketing calls, they're quite convincing. And you know, they have a lot of intelligence about how to make the voice just so, you know, and how it responds to your comments. I mean, it's really, it's sort of engaging. <laughs> sort of wanted to have a conversation with this person. And, and I was really polite. I, I said to the, the computer, I'm going to hang up now. <laughs> I thought that was interesting afterward. I wasn't embarrassed. I mean, I said, well, it doesn't hurt to be nice to 
a machine. <laughs> and this sort of fits into the point I'm making too, right? This basic wisdom instruction that we hear as information and we contemplate and it eventually starts to make sense as we understand our direct experience, right? Because in a way it's impersonal. It's like we have all this story about why it's okay for me to be disrespectful to a machine, but why it would not be okay to be disrespectful to a person. And I'm not saying, you know, there's no difference. I'm just saying that it's very interesting to play with that as we observe the mind knowing this, this is being known, this is being known. And then as there's some momentum just to bring in the right view, self or natural process, something being known, something being known. Is this self? Is this me? Is it happening to me? Or is it just a natural process? That there's something we call awareness that arises to meet every object. Sometimes the objects are quite broad and inclusive, like the whole, the actual object of awareness is the present moment. It's an all-inclusive hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental activity being known. And sometimes the moment of awareness, knowing an object, knowing an experience is some more subtle, more specific flavor of what's happening, really attuned to a particular sound or particular emotion, particular mental activity, thought. One moment at, an, at another, and when, when there's some momentum, you, there's a sense of resting back and seeing this as a natural process. And it's not like the Buddha or Saito Tejaniya or the three of us are trying to convince ourselves or convince anyone. It's really more practical or pragmatic than that. It's like what happens when we cultivate this view? So there's awareness, knowing objects of experience that come and go, right? And then if we bring in this wisdom element, right? that this is a natural process, what is the pragmatic effect that framing versus the condition, the habit frame would be, this is happening to me, this matters to me, am I doing a good job? And one of the pragmatic effects of having this uh, this view, this understanding, cultivating this view and understanding that this is a natural process, this whatever this is unfolding here, something being known, something being known, something being known, and then being lost in thought, and then something being known, something being known, something being known, and then lost in thought. You know, that's the rhythm of our practice, right? And then periodically just making the effort to remember is, is this a natural process? And then what's the effect of seeing it that way, understanding it that way? Because then it, it really becomes easier to see how that natural process gets really heavy and entangled <clears throat> and painful and how that natural process at in moments becomes very light and free. 
and you know you know this territory because already we're learning a lot about what's skillful and unskillful in our practice. But when it feels very personal, what's coming up, and so then the feeling tone, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of any particular moment of experiencing, then the feeling tone feels very personal. Then it feels like I should personally respond to the pleasantness or respond to the unpleasantness or respond to the neutrality of the experience. And then very quickly we get, you know, taking something personally leads to taking the next thing personally. So it really sucks us in and we get lost, identified, attached. And then, you know, this is the great uh, tragedy is that having been identified and attached with experience, for a while, then even if mindfulness were to reemerge, what's it going to feel like having been attached? Unpleasant, right? Because attachment is the cause for suffering. Suffering is unpleasant, right? Maybe pleasant, maybe sort of juicy sometimes on the surface, but as we become, become more sensitive, we feel the crunch, the tightness of that just the reverberation of having been lost in thought, having been attached, greed or aversion operating in the mind. And because it's unpleasant, unless the wisdom is right there with the mindfulness, the mind will be confused by the unpleasantness, right? I should probably do something more than just being aware because it really hurts. What should I do? And we're, again, we're relating, there may be some awareness, but we're relating from a self-view instead of awareness is knowing objects, this is being known, this is being known, and contemplating, training the mind to see that as a natural unfolding process. Following causes and conditions, Because it's only in that place where this deeper learning, you know, we call it insight, happens, right? When the mind is in that more relaxed place where there's some momentum, some continuity of awareness, some sense of what's unfolding is just a natural process that the mind, because the mind isn't entangled with what's unfolding, it can really understand the lawfulness of the mind unfolding and how it gets into knots, and how it releases those knots. And that's what we really need to see, because that's what builds the confidence that there is this path. This path delivers. But it's very specific. Right? It, it has a particular lawfulness to it. It's always frustrating, this path, because you know it seems a bit like a setup that Oh, so you're saying we have to be wise in order to gain wisdom. You know, it, doesn't that feel a bit like a setup? Like that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> but this is why, and I really, I mean, it's in the suttas, but I really like this about Saito Tejaniya's teachings because he emphasizes this point that initially we're just hearing the wisdom, you know, whether we hear it in a, from reading a book or we hear it from a talk And then we repeat it to ourselves. You know, we memorize it to some degree, put it in our own words maybe, 
so that we can keep recalling it in real time as we're practicing, right? Sort of regurgitating what we've heard. We need to be fluent enough. We need to hear it enough times, read it enough times, have conversations with our Dharma friends, not here on retreat, of course, but back home if you are fortunate enough to have Dharma friends or in our small groups here on retreat, so that it really, the mind becomes, the thinking mind becomes somewhat nimble so that it can bring it up naturally just in the course of having some continuity of mindfulness. It can just remember that thought. Is this a natural process or is this personal? Can I, what happens when I frame this, when I train my mind, practice, seeing this through the lens of it being a natural process, right? And it seems sort of artificial, like, well, if it's really a natural process, do I need to use a frame? But yeah, because we need a counterweight to the habit of framing it as a personal process, right? So we, that's all of the Dharma is in a sense ultimately artificial, right? But it's a very functional artificial system, right? particularly suited for deluded human beings like us, right? Because we need, like, it's only deluded people that need the Dharma. You wouldn't be able to sell this to, if we had a room of fully awake beings, you know, first of all, they'd probably take my place, but... (laughs) (laughs) But they don't need to hear this because these are teachings for people like us, I'm assuming, we need these teachings, right? And so they, it's sort of like they're conceptual structures that the mind uses to replace conceptual structures that aren't helpful with conceptual structures that are helpful because they align with the way it is. That's the mastery of the Buddhist teachings. Even though his culture and langu- language is so different and there's this whole process of an oral tradition and then a, ri- a written tradition. So even through all of that, 2,600 years later, these teachings are so powerful, so potent because they still, with all this translation stuff, they still somehow manage to line up with our lived, direct, immediate experience of our own mind our own mind and body. That, to me, alone is pretty inspiring, that these teachings make so much sense. One of the real joys of coming on retreats is actually driving here or traveling here together and going home together, because then people share, or whenever you get a chance to share like how people came into these teachings, right? And the some people experience such a, deep recognition um, way before we understood like, like even what the Buddha was saying, but there are some elements that just resonated really deeply in our hearts like, oh, like we've been waiting to hear this for a long time. This is a way that I trust. For some of us, it was the Buddhist teachings, just acknowledging the truth that experience is unsatisfying. And this is especially relevant for those of us with a lot of privilege, you know, being relatively healthy and not so oppressed and, you know, being a white, straight, middle-class person. And uh, it was sort of shocking, 
you know, in my high school years and early adult years, because I was always sort of reflective just to realize how my experience, even though, you know, from an outward point of view was like, looked pretty successful, looked like I had a lot, but I somehow wasn't satisfying and I knew that and that was very disconcerting. I, you know, I sort of, before I discovered the Buddhist teachings, it was sort of like my options where I could become really cynical, you know, or, or I could, you know, really be this sort of bohemian, like into uh, pleasant and interesting experiences, you know, interesting places to travel, interesting foods to eat, living in sort of interesting ways and interesting places. <laughs> it's like those are the two alternatives. <laughs> maybe you're laughing because you recognize this. <laughs> or maybe you're still, you think those are your two alternatives. <laughs> well, I think the three of us were here to say there's a third, right? Which is to get interested in these two, you know, basically the other alternatives that seem to make sense. And this is the, the uh, really powerful thing about the Dharma. There is, you know, necessarily there's enough pleasantness along the way because otherwise human beings wouldn't carry through with the practice, right? There is some beautiful experiences where the heart opens and there's a real feeling of connection, unity in moments, sometimes strong feelings of love and compassion arise deep, releases, emotional releases of pain and wounds that have been held for a long time that sort of uh, give us faith and confidence that something's at work, real sense of resilience and energy and uh, powerful clarity, like a feeling that the mind, whatever the mind puts its attention to, it can comprehend, it can see and understand. But a lot of what we eventually start moving through is this truth that nothing is worth grasping, that attachment doesn't make sense. And this is that intuition. This is where the mind really understands the value of this framing everything as a natural process, an impersonal natural process, because it really helps the heart, the mind, Continue following the path of awareness, wisdom awareness. This is being known, this is being known. So even though there might be a lot of unsatisfactoriness, a lot of uh, lack of ground, lack of anything to hang our hat on, anything that feels safe to take personally. I mean, we still do it, but it always teaches us the same lesson doesn't feel good to take it personally. It hurts. Whatever it is we take personally, even things that we think we should be able to take personally, like let's say you have a really healthy relationship with a partner and it feels very appropriate, at least on a cultural level, that the health of the relationship, the beauty of the relationship, you know, the stability of the relationship, I own that. You know, I'm responsible for that. This is my relationship, but it actually doesn't help the relationship. It doesn't make it more satisfying to take it personally, the relationship. 
and it doesn't undercut the relationship, even your relationship, those of you with children. It doesn't undercut the relationship to see the love that flows and the quality of the interactions and the dance that we have with other human beings as a natural process. It doesn't take anything away. It just does one thing. It helps the mind learn the difference between what is skillful and what is unskillful. What is in the direction of release and wisdom and compassion and peace and what is in the direction of greater and greater entanglements and suffering. I'll end by sharing this discourse that I've been really appreciating for a while now. Um, And the Buddha uses these three uh, similes. And they're really simple similes, but they're just his way of, you know, you know how powerful these metaphors, similes can be in conveying information that sort of more analytical points can't. So the first one, the first simile he uses, he says, suppose a hen has eight, 10 or 12 eggs. If she doesn't cover them rightly, warm them rightly or incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to the hen, oh, may my chicks break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Still, it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, warmed them rightly, or incubated them rightly. In the same way, even though this wish may occur to IMS practitioners and IMS teachers who dwell without devoting themselves to development, oh, that my mind may be released, right, from the causes of suffering through the lack of clinging, right, through the lack, absence of attachment, still one's mind is not released from the causes of suffering through the lack of clinging. Why is that? From the lack of developing, it should be said. Lack of developing what? And then the sutta goes on to just name the different lists, you know, the different maps that describe the Buddhist teachings on wisdom and awareness, right? Wisdom awareness is just a short version of all the different maps that the Buddha taught. It's sort of, it's really the essence or the distillation of the path. And so I like this particular image because it's, it's really pointing to how through the process of wisdom awareness, the mind understands what in fact leads to the eggs hatching, right? The eggs being the seeds of freedom, of release the releasing of greed, anger, and delusion, or the abandoning of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. What actually leads there? What is the lawful process of the heart becoming disentangled from these afflictive habits of our mind? Wouldn't you like to know that? So that's what gets distilled. And it's not easy to see clearly the causes, because we sort of know intellectually, like 
if I gave us all a multiple choice quiz, you know, what are the causes for suffering? And there was uh, peace and kindness and generosity and greed and aversion and distractedness or denial and delusion. I bet everyone would get 100%. You know, I said you could pick three. You know, we'd pick greed, anger, and delusion as the causes for suffering, right? Or correlates of suffering. So we know it, but then when we live our life, we're quite happy to be acting out greed, anger, and delusion most of the time. But when we have some stability of awareness and right view, wisdom, this seeing, experiencing it as a natural process, then the mind, because of the wisdom and awareness, is disentangled enough to really see like what actually allows the eggs to hatch and what actually doesn't lead anywhere good. And then we become a different human being where we actually have the conviction now to start making different choices. No matter how powerful the habit energy is, when we know it doesn't lead anywhere good, we can break even really deep habits, can't we? I mean, probably many of us have, but we maybe had to smoke a lot of cigarettes or you know, act out a lot of habits that weren't so healthy and really see and many, many times that it's not helping before we let go. It changed our habits or the habits just got worn down. The second simile the Buddha uses, <clears throat> so he, he has the second half of this, you know, about the hen doing the right thing and the chicks hatching. But the second one is about a carpenter <clears throat> looking at the handle of an axe, let's say, or a hammer, one that's been used for a long time, right? So the carpenter sees the marks of his or her fingers or thumbs on the handle but does not know today the handle wore down this much or yesterday it wore down that much or the day before yesterday it wore down this much. Still, this person knows it is worn through when it is worn through. In the same way, when a practitioner dwells devoting oneself to development, one does not know today the causes for suffering wore down this much or yesterday they wore down that much or the day before, yesterday, they wore down this much. Still, this practitioner knows they are worn through when they are worn through. And this is what I was saying a little bit earlier, like really getting the sense, because it feeds the practice to see the inclination towards release, however subtle, however ordinary that might be, but to really sense the path, sense, you know, you might need to look back three years or longer, right? But even the momentum, like today is not like Sunday morning, you know? Gen I mean, I know we go up and down, but there's some momentum that can build, even though there are moments when we lose it, but the momentum, like when we plant seeds, and even if we do a bad job, if we're cultivating the ground and watering to some degree, like that image of the ice freezing and expanding, this is a lawful thing we're doing. It won't fail because we're bad. It will only fail 
if the right seeds weren't planted and the water wasn't applied and the ground wasn't cultivated. If the right seeds were planted and water was applied and the ground cultivated, then something is happening. And it's really good to notice it. Even though we can't tell the difference between today and tomorrow, still, over time, we can see this habit has been worn through. I used to react in this way, but I don't react as strongly as I used to. Right? And it, this is one of the powerful things about these small groups that we have on retreat, is hearing other people speak, right? We really get a sense just, it's kind of like triangulation in research. You know, when we hear these stories from enough different voices, enough different minds, we really get a sense of the practice and the effect of the practice. It's so, one of the joys of this role is seeing how Dharma unfolds in so many different minds, so many different personalities. It always works, but it always is unique to each person, how the letting go, how the opening up, how the freeing up unfolds. And the last image the Buddha uses, again, it just kind of evokes the process as a natural, organic, impersonal process. And so he says, just as when an ocean-going ship rigged with masts and stays after six months on the water is left on shore for the winter, it stays weathered by the heat and wind, moistened by the clouds of the rainy season, easily withers and rots away. In the same way, when a practitioner dwells, devoting oneself to development, to practice, one's fetters, right, the afflictions of the mind, easily wither and rot away. Now, you wouldn't probably think, you know, for a, you see the big, Buddhist temples in Asia, you know, you wouldn't think that one of the images of the path would be the sails and ropes and rigging of a ship slowly rotting away in the humidity and the weather and the sun. But it's really a powerful image for me, right? Just the wearing away. And, and it actually really works, I think, with the light of wisdom and awareness and just like we're really valuing that, we're devoted to that, we're willing to start over. We're just sort of, we're not so concerned with what's going on, the particular thoughts, the particular emotions, the particular external circumstances. We're just concerned with shining this wisdom and awareness and really attuned to the effect. What does it do to the unfolding of this mind, this life? What is the effect? and really developing a taste for this freedom, this flavor of freedom, more space, more ease, more steadiness, more resilience. Now, I wanna end by just reminding us that that ease, that space, that steadiness is exactly what allows us to be okay about the mess in our minds and around us. So I'm not, don't misunderstand that as somehow you're becoming perfect, your personality isn't messy, your relationships aren't messy, you don't have dark nights of the soul or anxiety or 
you know, way too much energy or way too little energy. It's just the steadiness, the non-reactivity, the sense of forgiveness and space is actually only realized with that diversity of experience, the highs and lows. It's like, yeah, it's really great now. And that's just something being known. Or, yeah, it's really bad now. And that's just an experience being known. That's the steadiness that the practice leads to. So let's just take a moment, let go of the words. Notice how natural it is, the awareness here already. listening. So we have about 30 minutes for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.